You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. When Caverns Yawned, by Captain S.P. Meek, Part 2. Dr. Bird snorted. When will people learn that there is not, and in the nature of things never can be, a disintegrating ray? He exclaimed. Of course a ray can be made which will tear things down to their constituent elements, but matter is indestructible, and the idea of wiping matter out of existence is absurd. But I have heard you say that matter and energy were interchangeable. That is a different proposition. I believe they are. In fact, if you remember, Carmichael proved it, although the proof was lost at his death. Nothing of the sort was done at Charleston, however. Do you know how much energy is contained in matter? Well, a cubic inch of copper would drive the largest ship afloat around the world twice, and across the Atlantic to boot. The energy contained in the cubic yards of rock that were removed under Charleston would have blown the world to fragments. Then what did happen? Matter, as you know, is composed of atoms. These atoms are as far from one another compared to their size as the stars and planets of the universe. Each atom in turn is composed of electrons, negative particles of electrical energy, held in position about a fixed central nucleus of positive electricity known as a proton. I speak now of the simplest element. Most of them have many protons and electrons in their makeup. The space between these particles compared with their size is such that the universe would be crowded in comparison. What does that lead to? I have described the composition of lead, the densest known element, over thirteen times as heavy as water, bulk for bulk. Conceive what it would mean if some force could compress together these widely separated particles until they touched. The resulting substance would be an element of almost inconceivable density. Such a condition is approached in the stars, some of which are as high as four thousand times as dense as the earth. What Saranoff has done is to find some way of compressing together the atoms into that yellow powder which we found in the cavern. He has not gone to the limit, for the stuff is only a little over four thousand times as dense as water. A cubic inch of it weighs one hundred and thirty-two pounds. With its density increased to that extent, the volume is reduced accordingly. That was what accounted for those caverns into which the earth tumbled. "'I'll believe you, doctor,' replied the detective." "'But I'd believe you just as quickly if you swore that the moon was made of cream cheese "'made from the milk taken from the Milky Way. "'One would be just as understandable to me as the other.' "'They were interrupted by the entrance of a waiter "'who bore a huge pot of steaming coffee. "'Dr. Bird's eyes lighted up as a cup was poured. "'Carnes knew enough not to interrupt while the doctor poured and drank eight cups of the strong black fluid. "'As he drank, the lines of fatigue disappeared from the scientist's face. He sat up as fresh as though he had not been working at high pressure the entire night. "'Dr. Fisher tells me that the amount of caffeine I drink would kill a horse,' he said with a chuckle. "'But sometimes it is needed. I feel better now. Let's get to work. What shall we do?' Despite Saranoff's words, it must be possible to trace him. He is undoubtedly releasing his energy from some form of subterranean borer and such a thing can be located. The energy he uses must set up electrical disturbances which instruments will detect. I have had work started on a number of ultra-sensitive wave detectors which will record any wavelength from zero to five millimeters. We'll send them to various points along the seacoast. 
They ought to pick up the stray waves from the energy he is using to blast a path through the earth. I'm not going to bother with the waves from his motor. They may be of any wavelength, and there would be constant false alarms. I have another idea. What is it? I am judging Saranoff from his previous actions. You remember that he used a submarine in that alien smuggling scheme the Coast Guard broke up, and also when he loosed that sea monster on the Atlantic shipping? He seems to be rather fond of submarines. Well, the amount of energy he uses must be almost inconceivable, Dr. Bird went on. He can hardly carry an amount of fuel which will enable him to bore underground for very many miles. Charleston is on the coast. I have an idea that he uses a submarine to transport his borer from point to point. After using the borer, he must return to the submarine for recharging and transportation to the point where he plans to strike next. I already have two hundred planes scouring the sea looking for such a craft. Where do you expect him to strike next? I have no idea. New York and Washington will undoubtedly be targets eventually, but neither of them may be next. Meanwhile, would you like to do a little more flying? Surely. A plane is waiting for us at Langley Field. I want to look over the coast in the vicinity of Charleston Harbor, and some of the sounds near there. If he is using a sub, he must have a base somewhere. With a competent pilot at the stick, Carnes and the doctor spent the day in exploring. The day yielded no results, and with the coming of dusk they landed at Savannah for the night. Carnes talked with Bolton over the telephone, but the Secret Service chief could report no favorable progress. Tired and disgusted, they retired early but they were not destined to enjoy a night of uninterrupted sleep. At one o'clock a telegram was brought to their room. Dr. Bird tore it open and glanced sleepily at it. "'Get up, Carnes,' he cried sharply. "'Read this!' The yawning detective glanced at the telegram. It contained only two words and a signature. It was signed, Ivan, and read simply, "'Watch Wilmington.' "'What the dickens!' he exclaimed as he studied the yellow slip." Dr. Bird was hurriedly pulling on his clothes. "'Saranoff has slipped a cog this time,' said the doctor. "'He sent that as a night message, but it was delivered as a straight message through error. He has got further north than I expected. We will turn out our pilot and take off. We should make Wilmington by daybreak. I'll telephone Washington and have a couple of destroyers started up Delaware Bay at once. We ought to give him a first-class surprise party.' I suppose that Philadelphia was meant to be his next stop. In an hour the army plane took off into the night. At seven o'clock they were circling over Wilmington. The city had not been disturbed. For an hour they flew back and forth before they landed. Startling news awaited them. At six that morning an earthquake had struck Wilmington, North Carolina. Half the town had sunk into the earth. Dr. Bird struck his brow with his clenched fist. "'Score one for the enemy,' he said grimly. "'We were too sure of ourselves, Carnes. "'We should have realized that he would hardly be so far north yet. "'Well, I've got to use the telephone while we're refueling.' "'Within an hour after landing, they were again in the air. One o'clock found them over the stricken city. "'Dr. Bird wasted no time on Wilmington, but headed north along the coast. "'For a hundred miles he skirted the shore, two miles out. "'With an exclamation of disappointment, he ordered the pilot to turn the plane— and retrace his route southward, keeping ten miles from the shore. Fifty miles south he ordered the plane further out and again turned north. 
From time to time they passed a ship of the air patrol, which was steadily skirting the coast, but none of them had seen a submarine. Off Cape Hatteras the pilot asked for orders. "'The gas is running low.' "'Doctor,' he said, "'I think we had better put in somewhere and refuel. If we are going to keep the air much longer, I have been flying for thirty hours out of the last thirty-six, and I'm about done.' "'Head back for Washington,' said the doctor with a sigh. "'I seem to have gone off on a false scent.' At Cape Charles the pilot swung east over Chesapeake Bay. Hardly had he turned than Dr. Bird gave a cry. Excitedly he pointed toward the water. Carnes grasped a pair of binoculars and looked in the direction Dr. Bird was indicating. Sliding along under the water was a long cigar-shaped shadow. "'It's a submarine!' exclaimed Carnes. "'Is it a Navy ship, or the one we're after?' "'It's no Navy sub,' said the doctor positively. "'It's not the right shape. Look at that bump on the side.' The symmetry of the craft was marred by a huge projection on one side that could not be explained by the pattern of any known type of underwater craft. "'He's towing the borer!' cried the doctor in exultation. He took up the speaking-tube. "'Turn back to sea,' he cried. "'We passed four destroyers less than ten miles out. We want to get in touch with them.' The plane roared out to sea, while Dr. Bird feverishly sounded the Alnav call on the radio sending set. In a few minutes an answer came. From their point of vantage they could see flags break out at the peak of the destroyer leader. The four ships turned into column formation and stormed at full speed into the bay. The plane raced ahead to guide them. "'We've got him this time, doctor.' cried Carnes in exultation. He pointed to the bay below, where the submarine was still making its way slowly forward. Dr. Bird shook his head. "'I hope so,' he said. "'But I have my doubts. Saranoff is no fool. He wouldn't walk into a trap like this unless he had some means of escape. Here comes the first destroyer. We'll soon know the truth.' With the radio set he directed the oncoming boat. The destroyer reduced to half-speed and changed direction slightly. From side to side she maneuvered until she was less than half a mile behind the submarine, and headed straight for it. Dr. Bird tapped a few words on his key. With a belch of smoke the destroyer lurched forward. She cut the waters with her sharp bow, throwing up a wave higher than her decks. Dr. Bird watched anxiously. The destroyer was almost over the submarine, and Dr. Bird's fingers trembled on the key. One word from him would send a half-dozen depth charges into the water. On came the destroyer until it was directly over the underseas craft. Dr. Bird pounded his key rapidly. "'Good Lord!' cried Carnes. From the bump on the side of the submarine came a flash of red light. The destroyer staggered for a moment, and the entire central section of the ill-fated ship disappeared. The bow and stern came together with a rush and went down in a swirling maelstrom of water. The plane lurched in the air as a thundering crash rose from the sea. The second destroyer, in no way daunted by the fate of her colleague, rushed to the attack. Dr. Bird pounded his key frantically in an attempt to turn her back. His message was too late, or was misunderstood. Straight over the submarine went the second ship. Again came the red flash. The forward half of the destroyer disappeared, and the stern slid down into a huge hole which had opened in the water. "'He's invulnerable,' cried the doctor. He pounded his key with feverish rapidity. The two remaining destroyers slackened speed and veered off. Slowly, 
as though loath to turn their backs on the enemy, they headed out for the broad Atlantic and comparative safety. The submarine went slowly on her way. She did not turn west at the mouth of the Potomac, but continued on up the bay. As long as there was light enough, the doctor's plane kept above her, but the fading light soon made it impossible to see her. When she had disappeared from view, the doctor reluctantly gave the word to return to Washington. "'Where do you suppose he will attack next, doctor?' asked Carnes, when they sat again in the doctor's private laboratory. "'Washington, of course,' said Dr. Bird absently, as he looked up from a pile of telegrams he was running through. "'Why Washington?' "'Use your head.' Representatives of every civilized power are in Washington now, at the President's invitation, to consider means of halting the anti-religious activities of the Soviets. The destruction of the city and the killing of these men would be a telling blow for Russia to strike. But, Doctor, don't you think—excuse me, Carnes, that will keep. Let me read these telegrams. For half an hour silence reigned in the laboratory. Dr. Bird laid down the last message with a sigh. "'Carnes,' he said, "'I'm checkmated. "'I sent out a hundred ultra-sensitive short-wave receivers yesterday. Four of them were located within fifty miles of Wilmington, North Carolina. "'One of these four was destroyed, "'but none of the others detected a sign of a wave during the attack. "'One of them was within a hundred feet of the edge of the hole. "'If he isn't using a ray of some sort, "'what on earth is he using?' "'It looked like a flash of red light "'when it came from the submarine. "'Yes,' but it couldn't be light. Let me think. The doctor sat for a few minutes with corrugated brows. Suddenly he sprang to his feet. I deserve to be beaten, he cried. Why didn't I think of that possibility before? He hurried to his laboratory and brought out a small box with a glass front. From the top projected a spike topped with a ball. Through the glass Carnes could see a thin sheet of metal hanging pendant from the spike. "'An electroscope,' explained the doctor. "'That sheet of metal is really two sheets of gold leaf, at present stuck together. "'If I rub a piece of hard rubber with a woolen cloth, "'the rod will become charged with static electricity. "'If I then touch the ball with it, "'the charge is transferred to the electroscope "'and causes the two sheets of gold leaf to stand apart at an angle. "'Watch me.' "'He took a hard rubber rod and rubbed it briskly on his coat-sleeve.' As he touched the ball of the electroscope, the sheets of gold leaf separated and stood apart at a right angle. As long as the air remains non-conducting, the two bits of gold leaf will hold that position. The air, however, is not a perfect insulator, and the charge will gradually leak off. If I bring a bit of radioactive substance, for instance, pitchblende, near the electroscope, the charge will leak rapidly. Do you understand? "'Yes, but how is that going to help us?' Saranoff is accomplishing his result by artificially compressing the atoms. It is inevitable that he will do it imperfectly, and some electrons will be loosened and escape. These electrons, traveling up through the earth, will make the air conducting. Tomorrow we will have a means of locating the borer underground. Once you locate it, how will you fight it? That is the problem I must work out tonight.' Could we bury a charge of explosive and blow it up? Ordinary explosives would be useless, the doctor answered. They would react in the same manner as other substances and would be rendered harmless. Radite might do the work if it could be placed in the path, but it couldn't be. We may locate the position and depth of the borer, 
but long before we could dig and blast a hole deep enough to place a charge of radite before it, it would have passed on or changed direction. No, Carnes, old dear, the only solution that I can see is to turn his own guns on him. If I can, before morning, duplicate his device, we can train it on the spot where he is, and reduce him and his machine to a pinch of yellow powder. Can you do it, doctor? What one man's brain can devise, another man's brain can duplicate. The only question is that of time. I am confident that Saranoff will attack Washington tomorrow. If I can do the job tonight, we may save the city. If not, at any rate, Carnes, your job will be to see that the President and all of the heads of the government are out of the city by morning. The President may refuse to leave. Knowing him as I do, I rather expect he will. In that case, the issue is in the hands of the gods. Now, get out of here. I want to work. Report back at daybreak with a car. Dr. Bird turned back to his laboratory. He must be using a ray of some sort, possibly a radium emanation, he muttered to himself. That would have no wave motion and might accomplish the result, although I would expect the exact opposite from it. The first thing to do is to examine that powder with a spectroscope and see if I can get a clue to the electronic arrangement. When Carnes arrived at the Bureau of Standards at dawn, he rubbed his eyes in astonishment. The buildings were lighted up and the grounds swarmed with workmen. Before the buildings were lined up a dozen trucks and twice that many touring cars. A cordon of police held back the curious. Carnes's gold badge won him an entrance, and he hurried up the stairs to Dr. Bird's laboratory. The doctor's face was drawn and haggard, but his eyes glowed with a feverish light. Workmen were carrying down huge boxes. "'What's up, doctor?' demanded the detective. "'Oh, you got here at last, did you? You're just in time. If you'd been fifteen minutes later, you would have found us gone.' "'Gone where?' "'Out into Maryland, in an attempt to stop Saranoff in his progress toward Washington. "'Have you found your means of combating him?' "'I hope so, although it is not what I started out to get. "'Did you bring a car, as I told you?' "'It's waiting below.' "'Good enough. I'll go in it. "'Williams, are those projectors all loaded?' "'Yes, Dr. Bird. The magnet will be ready to go in five minutes. "'The electroscopes and other light stuff are all loaded and ready to move.' "'You have done well. I'll let you bring the trucks and heavy equipment while I go ahead with the instruments. Take the road out toward Upper Marlboro. If I don't meet you before, stop there for orders.' "'Very well, doctor. Come on, Carnes. Let's go.'" End of Part 2